VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Yo, technology, what is it all about? By the time Facebook launched, we already had 30 million users. And we were like, why would we go back to college? and go to a smaller market because we're already growing and it's, you know, yeah. it's, it's growing 60,000 people a day. Why don't we just keep going? That was the wrong choice. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I am your host, Danny Fortson, tech correspondent for the Sunday times coming to you live from my garage or garage if you are so inclined which i have we've kind of turned into our new home office because at this rate i guess i'm not i'm just gonna guess we're gonna go back into the office till 2021 and this week to that point we are talking about eras historical epochs if you will and how we may just be about to come out of one so james courier has been knee-deep in social media since the late 90s, which makes him something of a, a graybeard out here uh, and in the social media world. Um, so he started one of the first social networks, sold it, funded another one, a little company called House Party, which suddenly is one of the world's most popular apps. And anyhow, he wrote a really interesting blog post some days back, which is why I wanted to have him on so we could talk about it. And the thesis is this that in the last seven or eight years has been what he called a social media ice age. Um, there's been very little to no new stuff, no new interesting companies that have bubbled up. And we, we do talk about TikTok, so settle, settle down. Anyhow, Courier, who is the managing um, partner at NFX, one of the world's biggest seed stage venture capital firms, he reckons that because our lives have now been so turned upside down by the pandemic, that we have this whole new host of needs, psychological, emotional, social, which means that for the first time in nearly a decade, the environment is ripe again for a new generation of social media startups doing different stuff, serving different needs, coming out in kind of different ways. So perhaps the next $500 billion company, the next Facebook is gestating as we speak. Anyhow, I thought it was a really interesting idea, and I think you will too. So without further ado, I give you James Courier, managing partner at NFX, to talk about the big thaw that has begun and the end of the social media ice age. Enjoy. 
you can't have an ice age without a golden age. So the golden age of social media took place between about 2002 and 2012 or 13. That was when we got your LinkedIn's and your Facebooks and your, you know, your Snapchats and all these things that we're using today. Even even Slack started in 2013 on the on the business side. It was a golden age. It was uh, very artistic. It was sort of the most artistic corner of the tech world, and therefore it was colorful. It was fun. It required language skills and viral effects, and it also happened to have the benefit of, of bringing in direct network effects to the internet in a very powerful way, which made them very good businesses. Like LinkedIn got to be worth thirty billion, and Facebook's at six hundred or whatever. So, uh, not only were they fun and interesting to develop and, and propagate, and, and you could talk about them at dinner party, but but they actually made huge businesses as well. So it was sort of the trifecta. It was, it was the golden age. And a lot of a lot of venture firms really built their reputation on that. You know, the Excel investment in Facebook and the LinkedIn and Facebook investment by Greylock and and others really helped propel those venture firms to start them. Why did the golden age happen then? It happened primarily because of uh, internet ubiquity. So around 2003 or four, you had 600 million people on the internet. So you had a, a group of people that were were ready to go. You had increasing bandwidth in many places, but really the trigger was digital photography. So 2001, 2002, you start the proliferation of digital cameras made it possible to capture and upload digital photos for nothing to the internet so that you could have matchmaking sites, you could have friend friend sites. Back when Kodak was still on its last legs. Right. This was the process of moving from a world of one-to-many media, like radio, television, magazines, to many-to-many media, where we became the content. Right? And so that was the general thesis that I was operating under from 1998 on, which was, oh, wow, our number one interest is ourselves and our second biggest interest is other people. Can you talk about what you were doing then 20 years ago? Yeah, I was running a company called Tickle and it was fundamentally self-assessment testing company going after this idea that our fundamental interest is ourselves. And these mm-hmm. were very viral. You would take a dog test and then you'd send it to your 50 friends and they would all take the dog test and you would all share. Oh, like what dog are you? I'm a Cocker Spaniel. Exactly. And that got very viral. We did a lot of baby testing. And then we saw that people weren't retaining. So we said, you know, we really should make a matchmaking site of this. A lot of people were taking a relationship test. So we made a matchmaking site with profiles and connections and whatnot. And people stayed around on that much longer. And they said, you know, we really should make a a general member directory, not just for matchmaking, for, for people finding friends and just communicating around topics. And right. um, and that we called a member directory and then Friendster launched. And then we realized, oh, that's going to be called social networking. So then we launched the same day that, that MySpace launched and we had 30 million members before Facebook launched. So we were in those early days at that foment of time on the internet when it was the golden age. You could put these things up with five features and they would take off. And they were exciting and new and people were like, wow, what's this thing? Right. And it was exciting and your grandmother knew about it and your cousin knew about it. And, and it, was, it was a lot of A-B testing, a lot of data, a lot of language, a lot of, a lot of nuance, right? It was artistic. It was media. It was a media platform that would generate media out of all of us. It was like media within media. It was just the most talented people were doing better than the less talented people. And that was fun to watch. It was just like something out of media. So, so that went on. And more and more, we were, we were getting at people's general needs. So for instance, uh, finding a job, LinkedIn really helped with that. Or finding a date, Match.com helped help with that, and eHarmony, and these networking platforms. 
keep in touch with old friends. You had classmates.com, you had Facebook, you had lots of emotional and psychological needs that people had started to be ticked off, started to be, the check boxes were being checked throughout that decade between 2002 and 2013. And life was great. But at some point, most- Here comes the dun, dun, dun. Yeah. (laughs) But once things were generally well done, you know, you got Snap started July of 2011, Zoom starts in April 2011, uh, Slack starts in 2013. After that, not much happens. You know, you could talk about, you know, musically, from April of 2014, which becomes TikTok, which gets bought for $800 million and turned into TikTok. You could talk about Discord, you know, the gaming instant chat yeah. uh, system, which is super popular and growing outside of gaming now. And you could talk about, even if you want to stretch it into Fortnite, which is 2017, that's clearly more of a game. Uh, than. It but is. it feels like of all those, TikTok is the one. And it feels like that as opposed to what you were doing at Tickle or Bebo or Facebook or whatever it may be, that wasn't just what's happening at TikTok is very different from how those grew. Yeah, well, the way TikTok is growing is largely through, you know, ByteDance spending 30 or $40 million a month promoting it. That's a right. whole different strategy for building a big network effect. And it could very well pay off for them. It certainly is in their market cap right now. So right. the market seems to like that approach. It's not 100% viral. But maybe it's, you know, 30, 40% viral. But still, it's, it's still making media out of us. It's still letting your users generate the content and then, and then spreading it around um, and having feeds of things that you look at. It's sort of the same, same playbook from the golden age. What happened after 2013? Let's just, putting TikTok aside, which um, I would argue is a bit of a different case just because they're throwing billions of dollars at it to make it grow. Why after 2013, 2012, 2013, was this kind of the kind of a a social media desert in terms of new stuff. I think, I think it's the same reason that, you know, building railroads was really good between 1830 and 1870. But after that, most of the best places to build a railroad had been done. You know, you were building a small little spur outside of Atlanta with unionized labor and very expensive uh, monopolized steel. And you just weren't going to make that good of a a product or a business out of that little spur out of Atlanta in, in 1880. And it's the same thing here. I think we just sort of got across most of the things people needed, whether it was, hey, I'm really good looking and fabulous. That's my Insta. Staying in touch with uh, old friends and news, which was Facebook. You know, the snap thing was a little more or private, but most of the psychological and emotional needs had been met. In many cases, not met great, like LinkedIn. It's not a great product. I mean, we all know that it, it's not great, but yeah. it kind of does the job. It's kind of good, good enough. It's good enough. And it's got the network effect. And everybody's there. So it, it builds on itself. It's lead compounds over time, right? Preferred attachment of the network theory, all that. So once, once that had all been reached, there wasn't that much to do. Now, people kept trying. There was lots of uh, seed and angel investing in these new startups, hoping to find the next Facebook between 2013 and 2017 or 18. But I think by then, even the investors had figured out that it wasn't, the game wasn't the same anymore. And then I think what's happening now and why we think this ice age is ending is that we have a new set of emotional and psychological needs as a result of the pandemic. We're living what in do you play- mean? Well, we're, we're, going to be, we're going to be working more remotely. You know, so right now everyone's remote and we're going to go back to work at some point, but some portion of this is going to stay. Some portion of this remote life is going to stay. We're, 
people are going to build out their home offices. They're they're going to go, you know, work at Cody's, you know, and, and other places in their neighborhood. It's going to be different. And so we're going to have different emotional and psychological and, you know, utilitarian needs. And so that's an opportunity, both in the work environment as well as in the social environment. And I think that opens up Pandora's box again, which should be fun. Uh, and the things right. that used to serve us, like Insta or Snap or Facebook or whatever, might not be as relevant, might not really fit the way we feel about things in the same way that, you know, we got over Cheers or we got over, you know, a different sitcom, you know, because these are fundamentally media properties. Uh, they're going to last longer because they have network effects, but yeah. they're fundamentally media properties. So that's opening up. And then the other thing that's happening, I think, is that uh, people are getting much more comfortable with more types of communication tools within the enterprise. And that's going to accelerate because we now have remote working enterprises, which again, changes the, the workflow. Like Zoom and Slack. Right. So Zoom and Slack are the sort of leaders in that space, but you're going to see a plethora of other little pieces of our needs, utility, status, other things mm -hmm. that we have in the work environment taken up by new products and services. Um, and you've, you had a, a big bidding war on a little company called Tandem last year. You've had excitement around screen sharing companies in the last six months. You've seen lots of different attempts to find niches within the, the workplace. You could even look at something like an Airtable where people are sharing spreadsheets and see how that, that is social in nature or a Dropbox and how that 2007 company, you know, which was done during the golden age, was somewhat a, a social product, a so, you know, social sharing in a way. So I think there's both a, a work opportunity as well as a consumer opportunity for things that are social in nature that might follow a lot of the same rules and patterns that we saw during the golden age. Um, and so hopefully that will take place because look, it's fun. They, big build big, uh, they build big businesses and it's impactful for people. And so I guess the other question is, I mean, when we're talking about the ice age, you know, it was also kind of either copying or acquiring competitors into oblivion when you're talking about Facebook to a lesser extent, Google slash YouTube. How big a factor was that in kind of stifling or kind of keeping the ice age cold? And also, how do you see that playing out as this kind of new era theoretically unfolds? Yeah, so Facebook is uh, a company that has the capacity to monitor the world and to see what is moving and then has the culture to just copy whatever they see out there that, falls into a purview they want to have. And they've been very smart in 2008-9 of opening up their platform, the uh, F8, the FATE uh, platform, to allow a lot of entrepreneurs to experiment with what social products might work. Fart apps, hug apps, top friends apps, games, greeting cards, whatever. Did you say fart apps? Fart, yes. Fart as in flatulence. There's a fart app? I mean, I guess, I mean, of course there is. There was a lot of fart apps and a lot of hug apps and a lot of kiss apps. And you could get a fart app and your friend could fart at you and then you would get a fart from them and uh, just like that. And that would make them laugh. And, and that was the whole point of it. Facebook got to see everyone try everything on their platform that was social by nature. It was like they basically, they owned the lab where everybody was trying stuff out. And then anything that stuck, they could just absorb into the platform layer whether it's classifieds or whether it was groups or whether it was calendar or, you know, so some of the most viral apps on the Facebook platform were the calendar apps. And so sure mm -hmm. enough, whoop, they just suck it in and now it's part of the platform. 
So it was very clever as a way of sort of absorbing the last oxygen left in the room during the end of that golden age between sort of 2009 and 2012. And then they have proceeded to, you know, clone and uh, sort of deflect any other attempts to build a different graph outside of their graph. You know, LinkedIn really hasn't done that and it still has worked for them. So I'm not sure that, that Facebook's culture is what made the ice age happen, but it certainly um, helped uh, a little mm. bit. And in fact, they tried to buy Snap legendarily. I don't know if this is true. Yes. I, wasn't, I wasn't in on the negotiations. They tried to buy them for $3 billion. And Snap turned them down, and then went public for twenty or something. So, but being but like devil's advocate, and I am not a Facebook defender, but can't you say, well, they saw everything that was happening, that was taking off, and that was people seemed to like, and then they made it and integrated it into the biggest platform in the world. So, is that in fact an ice age? <laughs> if it's all, if this stuff percolated out in one form or another, it just happened to be on this one platform. Uh, okay, fair enough. For the consumer, uh, maybe they've had all their needs taken care of, which is why there's an ice age for new startups, I guess is my point. Right. For, for new founders who are not employees and W-2 uh, owners at, at Facebook, then yeah. Um, yeah. But it's also, I think, not, not allowed the, the creation of lots of new types and communities and looks and feels that you get when you have different entrepreneurs build different types of products. Can you just give a sense of kind of what you have been doing during this time period? You talk about Tickle, which was a while ago. Then what and then up to now, just to kind of give people a bit of context as to kind of the lens through which you're viewing all of this. Yeah, so I did I did a lot of the social media stuff up until about 2007. And then we did a social gaming company that ran a, ran a game called Dragons of Atlantis, which got, which got pretty big. And then we did a SaaS company for growth because we kept building our own growth tools. And so we turned that into right. a, a business um, and then sold that company. And then we used our game, of, our game engine understanding to try to do something good in the world. And so we built a platform for healthcare that we raised $68 million for from Venrock and others and, and uh, sold big enterprise software to Fortune 500 companies to help give benefits and healthcare to their employees. That was a company called GIF. And then after that, I've been investing in lots of different companies, seed and pre-seed investing in lots of different companies, a bunch of which were social media related. And in working with them, I uh, realized that most of them uh, did, couldn't find any oxygen in the system to move forward. One company that I invested in and, and worked very closely with, uh, eventually we, we produced Meerkat and then House Party. And this is with a CEO named Ben Rubin. Could you tell that, sir? Because I think it's really interesting. You were, was it as an investor, you went out to Israel to look for a... I was living overseas with my family for a year and a half. And while there, I went to Israel to find startups, met up with about 35 startups during the week and um, picked one and ended up working with Ben and investing in the company. He moved to San Francisco. I moved back from Europe to San Francisco. And he was working on a company called Yevo. And we evolved that into a new product called Air. And then that also was not going to work. We never launched that product. And so then we began a new process of developing apps much more quickly and with much more rigor and blah, blah, blah. We had five different apps lined up. And one of them was, was the first one we tried was Meerkat. And that kind of took off. And then Twitter, who had the graph that Meerkat was riding on top of, decided mm. to cut off that graph. And then Meerkat started to dwindle and die. And so there was a pivot from that. What was Meerkat? Because for a, for a brief shining moment, it was a big thing. 
for right. a brief shining moment of about four or five months, it was a big thing. It was, you know, the, like many things, the, the child of South by Southwest and uh, was on every radio program and, and whatnot. And basically it just allowed you to turn the app on and go live. All your friends right. would get a notification that you were on video and you were available to, they were available to watch you do your thing, whatever it was. It was a one to many typically. And you'd get a notification and then you'd come and watch and the person would do whatever they're doing. Talk about right. you know, cooking show, whatever. And uh, Periscope was a competitor to them that had gotten acquired by Twitter a few yeah. months earlier, unbeknownst to anybody. They kept it very quiet. And so Twitter said, hey, look, what you're doing competes with us. And so we're turning you off as our terms of service as we can if we have anyone using our graph or our API that competes with us. So they turned Twitter off and that diminished the value of the, of the experience. Mm. And then Facebook Live launched and Periscope kept going. And so it wasn't really a good spot for Meerkat. So we shut down Meerkat. And then instead of jumping to the second one that we planned on doing, I think we jumped to about the third one that we were planning on doing, and that was House Party. And that did pretty well for a while. And then it sold to Epic Games. And then it's now, I think, the number one app in 82 countries, or at least it was three or four weeks ago. Well, that's what's so interesting. So we had Seema Sistani on, yeah, probably 18 months ago. And she kind of told the story. And it was like, it's, an, it's always been an interesting app. And like you kind of use it and it's intuitive and you can see why, you know, it makes sense and it's fun to use, but it never really took off. And then all of a sudden it's now, I can't remember how many downloads it's been, but I mean, it's like whatever, 50 million downloads in a month or something. So there was some sort of shift in the emotional and psychological needs because the product didn't change that much. Yeah. And this is what we're talking about. We're saying, look, things are changing for us as humans, which opens up new product ideas. And so Ben's vision of what House Party could be has been fulfilled under these new emotional and psychological conditions. Yeah, it's just, it's amazing because they've been around, what, five years or something? Yeah, approximately four years, yeah. Right. So to going back to kind of the thawing of the Ice Age, one of the apps that people are at least talking about out here is Clubhouse. Are you in the Clubhouse? I am in the Clubhouse. Can you explain what the clubhouse is? <laughs> uh, it's been out on Twitter, so I, I feel free to do that. Uh, it's Right now, it's just 1,300 people that uh, were invited by the founders. Everyone is in there sharing voice. It's not a video app, and it's, and it's, and it's live voice. And people are talking, and there's certain ways of raising your hand and certain ways of, of moderating and uh, you know, they're, they're, of course, as any artist would, sort of a technical artist like these guys are, they're evolving it every day with changes to make it better and better and better. And so over time, these, these improvements are compounding and they're, um, they're getting ready for a prime time pretty soon. And that's what I think is interesting because effect effectively, it's a party line, which is not new, but the times are new. And who knows whether Clubhouse works or is a total disaster or something somewhere in between. But the idea that this is even kind of getting traction is has to be at least to a degree related to the circumstances we now found ourselves in. I would think so. And as uh, those circumstances change, maybe the social emotional needs change and go right back to the way they were before. And anything created during this period will die. But that, that's not the business we're in. I mean, as, yeah. as, as seed stage investors at NFX, that's not, that's not the game we're in. We, we, we have to believe in the optimistic view that things have changed enough so that there's a new opening for, for new products to service new needs. 
VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. As an investor, given the dynamics that have been unfolding in the social media world, have you basically, aside from, say, House Party, have you basically not invested in, the, in recent years? Or basically said, this is, this is not worth going after? Yeah, we, we haven't seen a lot of ideas that we thought had enough reservoir of social need, social, emotional, psychological need to actually build a new graph. And you feel differently now. Yeah. And how much of that is due to like the kind of this melding of the work with personal, you know, as everybody works from home, lives at home, obviously there's kind of, it's all rolled up into the same ball now in a way that it wasn't before. I think it's a big part of it. I think it's, it's a big part of it. Um, our expectations about our, our the things that we do at work are changing as we get more and more used to the consumer-facing tools. That's certainly true. You know, and as I've written, I, I think that our sense of identities are changing. You know, a few moments ago, I think I heard one of your children, you know. Oh, cry. you did. I was wondering if you heard that. <laughs> yeah. So I heard one of your children cry in the background and other people, their cat walks in front of the camera. Or, yeah. you know, that in 2017, that guy on BBC Right. With the kid in the background. I think yes. that was that was the kickoff to this whole changing of of our identities, our, our professional identities. You know, whatever it was 30 years ago, you know, Silicon Valley was the only place where people weren't wearing coats and ties to work. Now it's becoming more and more prevalent. Um, and our personal and our professional identities are merging in ways that we anticipated 15 years ago, but have, have taken a long time. It's pretty resistant. I mean, now everybody's wearing their jammy bottoms and just like, you know, kind of professional up top, sleepy time, right. waist down. Right. Yeah, exactly. 
And I think as we make that mental shift, new products will be appropriate. New, maybe there'll be a new Zoom. I mean, the technology for Zoom isn't that hard anymore. I mean, Zoom just rode the wave, right? They just rode the technological mm. wave, the broadband wave. The, you know, um, they've done the best job, and so they deserve the spoils of their forty billion dollar market cap. But, but I think there'll be other other ways that we do this. Were you an investor in Zoom? Oh, I was not. I was not. Zoom. That was a 2011. I was still running GIF, the medical software company, and you know, I was preoccupied. Plus, there had been Blue Jeans two years earlier, which was pretty much the exact same thing, and that just didn't happen to win. Oh, really? Yeah. That's so, funny. There's been a lot of them. And longtime listeners will know we've done. I think I mentioned to you before we've done a lot on Bebo. We did another podcast, like a two-part mini documentary on the Bebo story. You were a a central player in the drama. Yeah. So uh, Michael Birch was running a company called Ringo and Birthday Alarm. And Ringo was a social network, like our Tickle social network. 2002, 2003. Yeah. 2003, I guess. Yeah. And so we said, hey, Michael, we'd like to combine your social network with ours because we're growing at 3,500 a day. You're growing at 2,500 a day. Combined, we could take Friendster on. He said, sure. So we acquired his company. He came over. He worked with us for nine months in the office. And we had developed a bunch of different viral tools that uh, he benefited from and that he learned from and that he taught us on it. He's a great guy. And um, after a while, we started brainstorming every Wednesday about what new type of product to do. And ultimately, we, we concluded that we would do a redo of his old address book from three or five years earlier. He went off and built it. And he emailed us 24 hours later and said, hey, it's viral. And we said, fantastic, send us the code. So he sent us a copy of the code and we launched the same thing on his old URL, Ringo. And he's like, well, I need a, I need a URL for this one. I said, well, you should, here's one, Bebo. It's, it's short, it's fun, it's, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's acquirable for like three grand or whatever it was. And so uh, he used that. And then uh, we grew the two businesses sharing all of our data, even though he had left my company and he had started his own company. Mm. I was running Ringo. He was running Bebo. They were the exact same product. And they grew and grew over the next six months. Uh, eventually, he was at 53 million registered users. We were at 47. And this is when the which internet back, was, Which back in the day was massive. Well, because well yeah, the, the internet had 600 away. million people back then. You know, people were on the blogosphere saying, hey, these, these two products seem awful similar. I'm like, yeah, this is, you know, we're sharing all the experimental data back and forth and helping each other grow faster and faster because we'd rather each other gain the market share rather than somebody else copying us and taking one of us right. down. And uh, Michael's such a great, trustworthy guy, and uh, we like to, to be that way as well. And and then eventually, you know, we had been acquired by Monster. And so this was product number seven inside of our company. We had one person on it. And Michael said, right. you know, I think I'm going to turn this more back into a social network rather than keep it being this address book. And then it became more and more like the Bebo that then eventually got acquired by AOL for $850 million. And did you ever see anybody... I mean, I know there's Friendster. I know there's MySpace. Did you ever see anything back then that you're like, ooh, this could be the, the, the one, the thing that is what we now know as Facebook that wasn't Facebook? <laughs> or did you, when Facebook arrived on the scene, was like, uh-oh, everybody get out of the way? Well, you got to realize that Facebook was the fourth college social network. Stanford had already launched one called InCircle. It took over 70% of campus in three days. Wow. And we knew about it. And then there was uh, another one uh, that was built by this guy named Orkut. They were building 
college social networks, but they couldn't raise any venture capital. So they had to become a B2B company and sell these social networks to the universities, which took too long. And so that company died. Hmm. And then he got hired by Google. And then he built a social network called Orkut after his last name. And it took over Brazil just because it got viral in Brazil for a time before Facebook eventually took it over later. But there were a bunch of, of college social networks. And by the time Facebook launched, we already had 30 million users. And we were like, why would we go back to college and go to a smaller market? Because we're already growing and it's, you know, yeah. it's, it's growing 60,000 people a day. Why don't we just keep going? That was the wrong choice. We had gotten ahead too far ahead of it because the right choice was to figure out whatever social network gave you the right to use real names. Because mm. everybody, other than LinkedIn, was using pseudonyms because people, from a privacy perspective, were not willing to put up their social lives under their real name. Because what if their boss saw? We hadn't been conditioned to give it, just just put our whole lives online yet. We weren't conditioned yet. But as a resume on LinkedIn, that's okay. I'll use my real name because it's to help me get a job, build my network, relationships matter. Cool. Nothing's going on there. There was no fee. There was no photos. There wasn't even a photo on LinkedIn. So it was just a resume. So people would use their real names. Because Facebook started in colleges where real names were being used anyway. And, you know, they were the ones, the the second network to real names. Mm. Where it was sort of universal and enforced. and, And that made all the difference. The other thing that made a difference was that their product was better. So when Facebook launched, when I got in because of my college alumni. So when they started spreading out to not just colleges, but college alumni, I got on. Right. I projected it up on the wall of my whole, my whole 80-person team. And I said, look what they're doing. And I pointed out all the really nice product decisions they were making. This is when you were at Tickle or Monster? This is or... when we were at Tickle where Monster had already bought us. It was very clear that this, this one was the best product out there and that they had real names. And it dawned on me, oh man, this one's going to be big. And in fact, the it was pretty clear from there. And then it was a very famous dinner I had with a bunch of VCs where they were all saying that Facebook should take over colleges and classifieds and book sales and, mm. you know, rental, housing rentals and, you know, all that sort of thing. And I was like, I don't think so, guys. They're coming out and they're going to take over the whole world. And there was this big argument. There's a lot of yelling going on. It was really fun. Oh, really? And yeah. Yeah. That's funny. So it was unclear. It was unclear, even to the yeah, best yeah. VCs and the best, like how it was all going to go. And, and in that case, I tell you that story because I was correct in that case. But but, I'll, <laughs> but I also tell you the story where I could immediately see that the Facebook product was actually better than our social network product in terms of the design, the page load speed and, and all that sort of stuff. Well, just circling back to where we are today, it's just interesting that that fact around like using real names and real identity was something that you had to kind of thread a needle on because broadly people just weren't doing that, you know, 15, 18 years ago. And now it's second nature. So it's just kind of, it's interesting to try to figure out, all right, well, what's the next needle you can thread to then be, go elsewhere. be a year and a half ahead of where everyone else then tries to move. So they, they, they jumped ahead of the line. They jumped ahead on the, the diminishment of privacy concerns. And that made a big difference for them. And yeah, and that's the thing. What is it right now? What is that thing that you want to own that uh, once you own it, gives you a network effect that uh, will help you defend yourself against Facebook itself? Any ideas? 
Oh, lots. <laughs> Which you probably lots don't want and to share lots. A I'm just, I'm just, I'm just missing, I'm just missing founders, honestly. Oh, really? Well, do you think that's also another thing? Is like a generation of founders been like, there's no point in fighting Facebook. Why, why try? Yeah, that could be. That could be. Because you know, there's people like I think it's uh, you know Jason Calcanis. He's been out there being like, I will fund anybody with a good idea that can kind of become the new Facebook. And obviously, it's gone. I haven't heard anything come out of that challenge. You know, here's a million bucks or whatever it was. It's hard. I think I think we also have to understand, like I said before, this is the most artistic corner of the tech world, which means you want to draw a Venn diagram between, let's say, game development and tech, and you know. It's basically a social game, right? Mm. And you have to be that fine, refined in your language use, in your UX, in your design, your colors, who starts it, how you start it, where you start it. Like there's a mythology to these things in the same way that you have lots of sitcoms on television, but only Seinfeld is Seinfeld. Only Friends is Friends, right? Only The Office persists. And, and you're going to get the same thing with this. So, you know, why do we have so many movies with Tom Cruise again and again? Now we're getting, at, uh, you know, uh, Flyboy 2, uh, whatever that is. Um, <laughs> you know, it's because there's so few Tom Cruises. There's something yeah. special about that person. And we, we find the same thing with the development of these social media products. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg and the team he assembled from Exeter uh, and a little bit from Harvard, but mostly from Exeter, just phenomenal talent. Phenomenal talent in the same way that you have phenomenal talent on a, on a great movie. And so assembling that depth of talent in any one of these companies is very difficult and needs to start from, from a CEO and a product visionary that has complete control of the medium and of their own emotions and has great listening and great data analysis skills. I mean, th- this is sort of like your decathlete. Mm. Um, the people who build these things well are like your decathletes. Well, that's what's all, I guess the other interesting thing is just the generational aspect of it. Because now Zuckerberg is getting near 40 and I'm not casting aspersions. I'm on the other side of 40, but he's no longer the, the young guy at a university, you know, spinning stuff up that young people like. I mean, you know, they've, it seems pretty clear that Facebook is getting less good at coming up with stuff organically that people really like. They seem to be very good at copying and making great facsimiles of stuff. But it does feel like it's getting to that phase where, you know, what was it, it started in 2004? I don't, I, I don't think you should underestimate Mark Zuckerberg. His competitive level and his talent level and the, and the talent of the people around him is extraordinary. It's yeah. extraordinary. I don't think there's too many cracks in that edifice. I think it's going to have to be through just sheer talent from a startup outside, grabbing hold of an emotional or psychological moment in time, and that's that time. Now's that time. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank James for taking the time to Zoom with me. If you want to read more about this, I'm doing a piece for this weekend's paper on this very topic. We cover a few of these new uh, apps that are coming up just in the last weeks and months since the pandemic has really kind of taken hold. So if you want to read more on this theme and see and see what else kind of is happening around the world, I w- would encourage you to go to thetimes.co.uk and subscribe because that also helps keep me in a job which I'm a big fan of that is it for this week again a big thank you to James a big thank you to you guys for tuning in 
an even bigger thank you for all those of you who are doing ratings and reviews in these weird times. It always helps uh, when there's more of those because more people can find the show. So stay safe, stay sane, and we will talk to you next week. Enjoy. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone.